This is Consuming Culture, and I'm Kat McShane. I'm a journalist and filmmaker, and this podcast is all about how and why culture gets made, told through the eyes of the people who make it. Sounds simple, right? Well, I'm hoping this series gives some pretty unique insights into what it means to be an artist when the big issues of the day, like wealth inequality, advances in technology and people-powered social movements, are fundamentally altering the way culture is made, consumed and valued. Today, I'm speaking to Natalia Shelovich. Natalia Selewicz is curator at the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, Poland. She has programmed a series of feminist and biopolitical shows in her role at the institution. It's a tenure that has been against the backdrop of a rightward shift in Polish politics and legislation, most recently further restrictions on the right to abortion, which has seen tens of thousands of people take to the streets in protest. I was delighted when Natalia agreed to speak about her role as a curator in the middle of a time of social upheaval in Poland, but I'd also been quite nervous about speaking with her. So I was pretty devastated when the recording of our conversation was lost due to a one in a billion glitch in the platform the podcast was using. Hi Natalia, this is uh, a bit of an unusual one, isn't it? It is, I'm quite excited though. I mean, these things happen, uh, but you know, the performative aspect of our uh, conversation is also important. So. I'm happy to do it, you know, a second time around, just as if we're speaking like friends, you know. Good stuff. Um, well, look, I mean, so going back in time, I think, uh, before we get into what you're doing now at the museum, I wanted to ask you a few questions about how you even came to be a curator, because you're the first non-artist we've had on the podcast. In fact, you're sort of more of a person with influence over the sorts of artists that we've featured so I wonder could you just tell me a bit about how one where you grew up did you come from an artistic background right um uh, no actually um my I wouldn't describe my family background as artistic I mean um I grew up in Warsaw so in the city which definitely had access to culture and um as such you know like it laid a lot of uh offerings to me um and i was born in 1985 so um it was like my upbringing basically was really like featured <laughs> all uh, all stages of social transformations from the end of the communism to um you know turbo uh economic reforms um the joining of of the eu by poland and other um uh, Eastern European republics, and now you know this bizarre time when uh, we are post Brexit, post COVID, or well, not exactly post COVID. I mean, still in the middle of COVID, um, and uh, so on and so on. So, but um, I, I definitely uh, had like certain um, artistic leanings, let's say, um, by the means of joining, you know, like small theater groups or, or training as a dancer, as a, as a young teenager. And shortly, you know, after I uh, turned 17, I think I figured I want to do something around humanities. Uh, so um, I think um, I always thought about like my curatorial or engagement or engagement with humanities as very interdisciplinary. So um I think art for me has always been something that helps me to 
organize my thoughts or like name things that I wouldn't be able to name otherwise um, that, you know, relate to my personal anxieties, fears, desires, but also to uh, social transformation um, of the city, of the country, of uh, global issues around the questions of um, um, sexuality um, or identity in general, uh, be it racial identity or, um, or, or sexual identity. Um, can you remember what first inspired you to become interested in, in the art world? What, what were the sort of artistic and cultural influences when you were a child? Oh, I think it was never a question of art world. I think that art world as we know it in the West um, didn't exactly exist, or at least like I wouldn't be able to identify with it as a teenager. So um, uh, it happened much later. And in fact, the year, I think it was 2004 when I moved to the UK, it was the year when Poland joined the EU and hence like many countries from uh, the former East were able to, um, students from those countries were able to pay home fees. Um, I also received a scholarship and um, was able to move to London. Um, and it was definitely like a groundbreaking experience for me to suddenly, you know, like to be plugged into um, a global hub of culture um, and um, study texts uh, of art history, of being able to meet artists. I also worked for um, an important YBA artist, Gavin Turk, in his um, studio as a uh, production assistant and, and ad admin assistant, which really like helped me to understand what art products what art production is about and what is conceptual art for instance um, which I wouldn't necessarily be able to discover on my own without internet um, and without um, access to all these things that we are able to uh, share and circulate um, now but um, what do you think the pool was to go back? Well, I, I wasn't necessarily interested in the art market, but um, it was a time when um, the place where I'm currently based at, so the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, which was founded in 2005, um, you know, was definitely um, like peaking or really like developing a cutting edge program, um, temporarily occupying diverse locations, you know, while it awaited and it's still awaiting its future permanence home. Um, and um, I think it was also like pure luck that I managed to squeeze in and, <laughs> and ended up working there. Um, and because, you know, like Warsaw is such a, I mean, it's really like um, a city that has so much going on. It's really, I think, it really is a city of rupture and fragmentation. And uh, I know we can say that about so many different <laughs> <laughs> countries and cities and cultural backgrounds, but at least like to me, like mm. despite, you know, this turbo capitalist acceleration that we noticed in the last decade or, or, or 20 years, it still remains relatively untamed. It has like an incredible, um, uh, activist culture and and um, civic disobedience and and even like access to culture is I would say much more democratic at least like on the financial level 
whether it's something that's um, accessible uh, on a semiotic level, it's a different um, different story. But you know, I think um, you know you have this urban decay and rebirth. You have this location and unresolved anxiety and this desire to establish individual histories. You know, and this festival of neoliberal consumerism. I do think that Warsaw has a lot going on, and and this is perhaps why I I ultimately came back and why I stayed there for um, at least like in the institution itself, like for t- ten years now. Well, let's talk a bit about that now. Your career at the Museum of Modern Art, which, as you say, stretches back ten years, is set against a backdrop of. Um, a kind of rightward shift in in politics, in in particular the Law and Justice or PIS party came into power in 2015 and it's been a period marked by attacks on the rights of ethnic minorities, women and the LGBTQI community. Now we'll talk about some of the work you have programmed during this time but I wondered even before uh, PIS and and its sort of ultra-conservatism, what were you interested in making work about? I've always been interested in, um, you know, like really universal things. Like, I mean, this is going to sound corny as hell. Yeah, love and death. <laughs> but no, just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, I somehow like it has always like circulated around the themes of sexuality, but also shame. And um, I don't know how these two uh, factors influence our um social politics or individual politics and it's true that um throughout the years i've always been very interested in you know queer politics and 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 intersectional feminism so this is a thread that can be definitely picked up in my work poland hasn't really witnessed the sexual revolution of the 60s as many other countries in europe or the us um have um even though we can discuss i mean we can will be good to debunk this myth in relation to the west uh anyway um but because this sexual revolution never has happened um in 100 percent way and then after 1989 um you know certain domestic perception of uh woman and family have been reinforced by the church and the politics of the state and the church. Um, I, I wonder if, you know, like subconsciously it's something that, that I felt as a, as a teenager um, or as a young woman who was, um, you know, as many others struggling with patriarchy. Um, but I think like um, something that I've strongly developed that, that can be really visible and which I feel personally is um, how affects um, have become so important um, to the work that I do. Affects as, you know, like something that is um, felt and how um, in relation to an artwork, but also how is expressed through an artwork um, and how um, our personal feelings um, or expressions of feelings and our personal individual subjectivities can become uh, a collective voice of political resistance, possibly. Um, but um, yeah, it's a big question, I think. Definitely, you know, like feelings, shame, sexuality, uh, 
non post shame <laughs> and post sexuality mm -hmm. uh, is is something that will always interest me because it's ultimately it's part of it of human experience and it's um, one mm -hmm. of the most beautiful uh, things that how we can express ourselves. Yeah. So you were already interested in how bodies are controlled by shame and guilt. And I guess how the government, the, sorry, the role that the government has in instituting this through legislation. I, I'm just wondering, do you think having an ultra conservative government in the last few years has sort of emphasised your desire to explore these themes? Mm, I think I've always been interested in, um, you know, how the personal becomes political. Um, but, you know, definitely, you know, like as the country's politics swerved right, you know, words such as gender and politics, patriot, the nation, the blasphemy, you know, they have become really empty signifiers, you know, and uh, so, uh, or, or tools in, in this artificial war, media war, where, mm. you know, where, where words can really be filled with propaganda from both sides. So it's, I think it's more like living in a very polarized society that makes you question like different things. And um, I think one of the main challenges faced by curators and art institutions is how to find ways to, you know, invest these terms with meaning uh, and also how to debunk, you know, like this self-congratulatory myth that, you know, like, that liberal art community knows it's best, you know, <laughs> like that we have the solution. You've programmed several shows focused on biopolitical and feminist perspectives. Paint, also known as Blood, Women, Effect and Desire in Contemporary Painting, and a show focused, uh, among other topics, on the role of women in Poland's trade union movement. Can we talk a bit more about the Paint, also known as Blood show? Mm hmm so Paint Also Known as Blood was a painting show. It was a show that presented the work of uh, more than 20 uh, contemporary painters who identified as women or femme um, coming from Poland and beyond. Um, uh, the show basically like tried to address, you know, how paint with this visceral, um, almost physio physiological nature um, of being like so closely associated with bodily fluids like blood, menstrual blood or um, saliva, sperm, urine can transmit, you know, an experience that's very corporeal and very uh, political. And I think it was, uh, it's for a reason why I focus on painting, and, you know, in, um, um, in a political moment where we saw such a big proliferation of um selfies and uh, digital representations of the body. I feel like I really wanted to tie it back to experience that's um, mm. very much rooted in the material, I mean, in in the body itself and also, um, yeah, like the material aspects of what it means to be a breathing body, you know, a body that can feel pleasure, pain, that can resist, that can... Um, uh that can also be violent i think one of the what was at stake in that show is was first of all like to to deal like with affects that are not necessarily tame and nice but that are violent angry and that are to show them they are like legitimate emotions and affects of humanity therefore women can also you know 
perform these affects or identify with them. And it's not that I was interested, you know, in femininity or womanhood as a marker, as something that creates a subcategory of painting. But I felt like there is something to be said about, you know, the fourth wave feminism. So like this field of feminism that really um, focuses on, on um, pleasure, on bodily experience, on um, different intersections of human life and so on and so on. And, and that is post shame and for, for whom like the aspect of shame or difference is no longer an issue or no longer like a defining issue. What does it mean to create an artwork without referencing the male gaze? I think that's something I was really interested in. And it was also something that I start, started to discover in relation to my own agency as, as, as a person in everyday life. Um, Do you remember what, the, uh, what sparked your initial idea for that show? Yeah, I think it was some of the work of um, Polish painters, of young Polish painters who are, who are my contemporaries. So women also born in the 80s who, you know, started painting um, in this super visceral um, way, blurring figuration and abstraction, where, um, where who also like depicted, depicted violence, but with this tongue-in-cheek, slightly sardonic, approach to it as almost like they're trying to I don't know uh, somehow neutralize you know the violence that was being enacted onto them and and I think it's one of the strategies that minorities or the oppressed groups adopt like to you know to resist the dominant structure or to resist um, the acts of violence like to dwell into um abstraction, obscurity, or to over-identify with certain figurative stereotypes. What was the violence that you and the female uh, painters that you're talking about, what was that violence that you were trying to highlight and deal with? So I'm not even like discussing, you know, like the painting that is testimony to trauma, because obviously there were a couple paintings like this, but rather uh, like a certain experiment you know with the fact that um, feminine sexuality has uh, for many years been associated with something animalistic and wild and and therefore it was and still quite often is like in the heteropatriarchal um, uh, circles objectified as such and um, I started looking for instance a woman who in this extremely flamboyant flamboyant joyful humorous way they even like adopt or like self-identify with animals or um or talk about their yeah like their wild mm -hmm. needs let's say uh or those who like implicate the viewer in the act of looking at the violence being recreated you know on the canvas mm. um and this is why painting is more, I think, to me at least, like was more interested, interesting than um, a digital image, which circulates. And this also because, of course, we know that painting is part of like a art market circulation and also has, um, you know, like is part of like a megastructure that is uh, corporate and um 
and defined by different uh, types of market engineering than let's say Instagram or or uh, Pornhub or whatever. But um, it was just interesting and exciting for me to see how, you know, like this uh, sex positive attitudes are adopted in, in the medium of painting where, you know, like you see the actual act of pleasure of painting being encoded in the canvas <laughs> that you're looking at. Uh, so there was a sort of sensuality to it as well. Painting is a funny medium because you can really see like the signature moves or, or the, the, the bodily performative sensual personality of, of, of the author, um, in the work. And I think I just wanted to create like this big visual essay of more than 120 works where it's like extremely unapologetic. It's, uh, basically sending a signal that, okay, you want to objectify me, be my guest, like, this is me, like, <laughs> on the plate for you, but actually, you are the guest here, you, uh, it's you, the visitor, who is probably more objectified, or if you want to look, look, okay, like, keep looking, but it's not going to be nice, necessarily, or you're not going to see anything pretty here, and actually, I remember, like, this moment after the opening where a uh, rather old male artist came up to me and asked me but why there is so much monstrosity and ugliness in this show like why the women depict themselves like that and <laughs> my answer is why would you think this is not part this is not a part of our experience you know i was really enjoying hearing about natalia's personal motivations for the work she shows and it was natural that our conversation turned to the wider politics they're connected to. We began by talking about the role of culture in protests against the country's new abortion laws. Yeah, so I think that after October 2016, um, when we saw for the first time this like huge mobilization of women who took it to the streets after first attempt at this um, drastic abortion ban, um, we witnessed not only social um, mobilization, but also, you know, like um, <sighs> proliferation of a uh, new form of visual practice that was taking shape in the streets, and uh, you know, in the sprawl of social networks um, where these images and ready-mades really swept through the public sphere. Um, you know, I mean, of course, things like memes or left-wing protest banners or performative acts of resistance, things that you've probably witnessed um, in the media in mm. the last year. I think this has really started around 2016, where uh, different activist groups started testing these performative acts more and more, and also artists joined, joined the activist groups more stronger than I can remember after 1989. Does that sort of boost confidence in the power of art as an activist tool, seeing these sorts of actions on the streets? Yeah, I think what, um, what's helpful is to think about art outside of the institutional networks. Probably if you ask an artist who's really committed in activism, but also has shows in in galleries or in institutions, they if you ask them how do you decide what is art and what isn't? I mean, they, they will not like, <laughs> I feel like we are talking sometimes in, with a very old vocabulary. 
you know, like um, perhaps when we look at the social upheaval, these categories are no longer valid. I mean, we see visual practice that is so creative, that is so much informed by, yeah, by a performative act or by um, linguistic game, by... Uh, it's like so witty and, and, and incredible though that it, that can become like viral overnight and music, right? Like the fact that, um, especially, uh, in the last months of lockdown where, um, social gatherings were forbidden, protests have actually been like the only sites where people could also like, um, exercise being um yeah a body in motion or like a one community in motion with with music with you know even like the performative act of marching through the street um and the protests obviously marked by unified women but also how many young people have turned out uh who uh, seem to be pretty upfront and unafraid um of speaking out about what they want how far do you think these protests have been a backlash, not just against abortion laws, but a sort of rage uh, against violence towards women and minorities that people just feel like enough is enough and we're not going to back down? Yeah, definitely. I perceive it as a generational movement and um, resistance towards all the baggage that we had to carry with, you know, like with the highly mythologized history Um of um of having to deal with like these strong patriarchal figures messianic figures of um discrimination of women and minorities and i must say i'm incredibly grateful to this generation i think um what they're doing is also creating a formative fundamental moment for me you know a person who's like 10 years older um mm. i think it's the first time that um that I see the society um, uh, mobilizing and, and organizing, self-organizing together so strongly um, across like different um, different social groups and social interests, um, and how you know ecology, um, hospitality, um, and love are the guiding principles of this revolution. What is it about this moment that seems to have galvanized young people to be so outspoken? And not just young people, but all the people that turned out on the streets. Why now? Where has this energy come from? Um, so many analysts like to bring, uh, you know, COVID to the forefront as one of the factors that like this lockdown and the fact that many of the laws that are constraining human rights have been proposed during the lockdown have actually uh, really antagonized many, many people. And I mean, this is true, but I think, yeah, it's like a general feeling of um, having to like revisit certain uh, myths about, you know, freedom, prosperity, democracy, um, I mean, there's also a reason why similar debates um, are happening globally, I think, you know, also like with Black Lives Matter and people are organizing on a grassroots level and are able to push their leaders, you know, more to the forefront via social media and uh, um, local politics. I think this is what's uh, hopefully happening in Poland, but... Um, 
Did it take you by surprise on a personal level? So one of the most unique things about the protests that we're witnessing right now is um, I think how the information about it circulates online and how it's not just, uh, you know, not just Warsaw um, of where you see, I mean, you see probably a lot of extremely like flashy pictures of 10,000s of people occupying the main square, but um, I must say I was like very impressed how young people, not just young people, but people in general, um, resisted and marched and organized themselves in small uh, towns in the countryside uh, where the personal risk is, is much higher than um, melting into a big colorful crowd on the streets of Warsaw. Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing um, a video. It was um, like teenage girls. Um, uh, I don't know where it was in Poland, but it wasn't in a, in a major city. And they were all around um, a priest and kind of really shouting at him. Yeah, but I would say even like peaceful protesting, um, mm. you know, in this town is extremely brave. Because you face, um, you know, you face pol police violence and you, you, you face ostracism from, um, your local community, which more often than not is, um, you know, like very Catholic and, 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 and uh, uh, patriarchal. Although, I mean, some of the statistics that we saw in the past months, um, said that like, I think 70% of Polish citizens support the women's strike or like, or the protests. Um, so um, I think, yeah, the thing that was that really struck me as a new um, kind of um, affect of, of today was this unapologetic anger and the fact that uh, the protesters were not able to, you know, to use language that was like deemed improper of them. I mean, there is no proper language of protests. I mean, as long as it's mm. not hate speech towards, you know, minorities, then um, I think saying fuck off is not like, <laughs> it's nothing prudish. And yet like it created a huge, you know, revelation in the media, even like among uh, liberal journalists. So that was quite funny to watch. What do you mean? What kind of what kind of thing were they saying? Well, you know, like people were saying things like, "But couldn't they protest in sl slightly more gentle way? Like, why do they have to say fuck off? Can't they say something slightly milder?" And then, you know, like we witnessed a plethora of new memes saying, uh, "Oh, sorry, like uh, I meant uh, I'm just protesting for my basic human rights." Or next time I'll say, would you mind politely removing yourself from like this space? Or I suppose even in those statements, it shows that there were parts of the media or commentators that didn't really understand the protest. They couldn't have really understood the depth of feeling. Yeah. Um, and they were discussing aesthetics, but like aesthetics from a very wrong standpoint in the first place, you know, like, why would you like, don't like tell people how to protest, like try mm. to think what are they protesting against, you know? Um, so, um, and you know, ultimately when someone's boundaries are being pushed, um, back and back, then the reaction is going to come out. I mean, this is like, 
it's a simple math. So um, your museum freely shows the work of queer artists. Um, does that feel more important at this time? I think visibility is um, a huge thing. You know, like it's um, giving visibility to those who have been denied it uh, or who are being denied it is is a very important um, job to do. Um, and I, I can't say we've ever felt like any censorship on that part. And um, I mean, we acquired to our collection works that, um, you know, even like queer Polish art history, but I think the strongest resistance comes from uh, artists who self-organize and who make their own collectives, like in this like really fucked up time, you know, when the economy is basically uh, collapsing, where you have COVID. And um, but I think also like as a public institution, you have to negotiate all needs, or or you. You kind of have to have like a certain universalist uh, approach to the program. So I think um, what we're trying to do is like we're trying to look at the intersection and like create coalitions of um, or, or alliances of common interests. At this point, Natalia wanted to clarify her position. Life is tough in Poland right now, as it is in lots of places, and she didn't want to feel like she was boasting about the museum being able to achieve more than it could. I don't want to uh, like jump into this self-congratulatory myth of the museum as, you know, problem solver, because this is who we are not. I think that the most beneficial actions are happening grass on a grassroots level. You know, with these art collectives, with uh, NGOs um, who are like helping, you know, this campaign against homophobia. There's there are like different foundations that are really like helping people survive. I sometimes feel a bit awkward raising some of these uh, points at risk of sounding like the Western voice saying how worrying things are in countries with more authoritarian governments, because... In the UK, we also live under threat of having hard-won rights taken away. I don't know if you heard, but last week it was announced that the government was going to introduce this, um, like a free speech and academic freedom champion. Yes, yes. To yeah, investigate potential breaches of free speech, especially at universities. Mm -hmm. And it's such a non-problem, obviously. And it's, um, especially compared to all the other problems in higher education, but it's just an ideological statement, right? It's yeah. part of this really, really scary culture wars um, that is happening in lots of countries. Um, no, but it's true that, like, in Poland, it took, like, a very grotesque turn. Like, uh, you know, like, you watch it, like, with a sense of, I don't know, is it science fiction or just political fiction? <laughs> but... Um... I wondered how necessary... Um, or is in a time of crisis, uh, has it helped making sense of the chaos? Um, so, you know, it's always like a bit difficult to speak about the importance of art um, amidst the crisis where, you know, like people are losing jobs and um, die every day and have no access to hospitals. But this is also like such a populist <laughs> strand of thought that is often used against culture, that it's not important, that people who make art art don't count. Like they did they don't shouldn't that they shouldn't get like financial support from mm. the city, state and so on. Um 
like for me, art is necessity, you know, like art and culture is necessity. And I'm not speaking about it from the position of a person who, you know, like found this like very extravagant <laughs> field of interest and expertise and is going to tell like people who are suffering that it's so important. But I think um, even how like people, we, we keep forgetting how um, those of us who are, who found shelter and who could um survive the lockdown and the safety of our home in the safety of our homes um were streaming you know countless hours of films of music of theater plays that were provided by the closed theaters online uh looking at all the resources that our institutions had uh, looking at um at culture i mean at what is produced as culture today um so i think that art is like really impactful and important for the fabric of our society. Um, and of course, in, in speaking from the Polish perspective, I can also say that it does like express things around the current sociopolitical climate that journalism or other fields of, um, of knowledge production don't always um, have like access to because Precisely, you're um, naming something unnameable. Um, but yeah, of course, like the, the artistic milieu and uh, has been severely affected by the COVID um, also in Poland. And um, despite uh, um, some, fo some forms of support from the cities and uh, from the municipalities and the states, artists have and not just artists, but basically cultural producers, educators, uh, um, art activists, um, manufacturers have been um, left out. What has the museum been able to do during COVID in order to show work and, and also keep the, keep the public involved with the museum? We tried to uh, come up with some solutions, very modest ones, but still, um, like we, the, the show that I curated with a colleague from the museum, um, Tomek Fudara, um, something in common was um, an initiative where we invited a lot of artists, but also speakers, activists, educators to uh, curate not just the show, but also big public program, um, which would help us to uh, yeah, reflect on these difficult times, but also it would clearly be a solution to produce art, culture, and to pay people. From the very beginning, we knew that we are going to um, not uh, spend any money on outdoor um, advertising or on architectural design. Uh, so things that consume a lot of money usually um, you know in in the frame of exhibition making um, to in order to channel all all these funds to artist fees and art production budget so the exhibition was one thing but the other one uh, was uh, the actual public program where we delegated curation to micro communities who dealt with very diverse subjects from politics of hospitality and um, queer solidarity and solidarity with the migrants in the city um, and many, many others. Um, and this was really interesting because it meant it allowed us to 
work with very diverse um, individuals and, and, and groups who could actually tell us what they want to hear, what they want to talk about in the museum. So at least like for me, it was a very uh, rewarding process of delegating this curatorial you mentioned power at the beginning or, or control. I think um, it's very important to to make things more porous, you know, within institutions and to um, experiment with uh, different actors from the outside. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like a bit of a juggling act, your, your job. You sort of have a responsibility to your artists, to the museum's mandate, I guess, to sort of the works of art, to objects, but also to the public. Um, are these sort of all equally important or at the moment are some more important than others? So this is more of a time to sort of, you know, be activist and bring people of opposing views together or to listen more to what people's concerns are. I mean, this is going to sound like such a uh, campaign lingo, but to inspire people for art and like to to show them that it's an important tool like for self-expression for a negotiation of these meanings of like seeing how like throughout the history the meanings have changed and how artists were able to express you know the anxieties of our eras but of course like solidarity and um, sharing of resources is very important for instance sharing space for an activist lab uh, yeah creating um, um, you know, free portfolio review day where a curatorial team can meet uh, with people from the outside and, you know, offer a different type of service than just curating shows. <laughs> um, and I think we have, as institutions, we have to rethink our uh, modes of thinking and being with people. Um, like on... Personally, what I really miss, like the, the thing that I, I I really long for and that has been affected by COVID is guided tours and where which quite often, at least like in the context of the paint also known as blood show, were conversations with big groups of people uh, in front of the artworks uh, or yeah, performances that happened within the exhibition space. Right now, with the limits of, I don't know, right now, I think it's 50 visitors at once um, in the exhibition space and limited public programming that can have that can happen live. It's very difficult to, you know, to to feel each other in the space to to, you know, stand in front or next to another breathing body to sense someone's sweat to see how they're breathing. We are all like behind the interface of, of, of our Zooms and Google Meets and, and screens. And it's it's very exhausting uh, for sure. And how does an idea for a show start with you? Yeah, yeah I don't know how to answer this question. I think it's um, it, it has to come from something that is of personal significance to me also. Um, I mean, I have to be able to engage with that in order to have like a very impactful. Oh my God, no, maybe this sounds like too narcissistic, but. Um... But you're putting it, you put a lot of yourself into 
the shows that you program I'm assuming so you would have to be passionate about the subject matter and about what you want to impart yeah. to audiences I think, yeah I think you know there there are exhibitions that need to be made you know like the the times that we live in they call for these exhibitions I don't want to bring this to make this about me but yeah for sure I mean ideally I have to like feel passionate about something to to be able to take a stand and to contribute meaningfully to um, uh, to the exhibition, whether I do it with success or not, is another question. I mean, um, um, I think I I really enjoy when I see people like stuck in front of an artwork for <laughs> longer period of time, and just uh, mostly I just love like being able to help artists to get their work being seen and and then like facilitating this dialogue between the public and and the artists so that's the best feeling i guess <laughs> i think i'm in a very privileged position to be able to invite people and to speak to people so i i understand i also have to do it responsibly for sure like there were exhibitions like such as paint also known as blood or my previous exhibition ministry of internal affairs where i felt okay this is really pouring from the inside i have to make this because it really well first of all like it's itching me <laughs> to to say it but also i know that i can communicate i know that there are women and other people who who will identify with this because it's so poignant right now so I do believe that as curators, we need to implicate ourselves, um, not only because, you know, the social upheaval is so dominant and, and, and visible at the moment, but um, we all have to take sides. What do you think it is that makes you a good curator? I think it's very difficult to speak about um, oneself, like in this not even critical way, but I think that... Um, I can say what I at least like admire in, 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 in curators who I observe and I admire people taking risks, um, but risks that are um, always like amplified by solidarity and responsibility for, the, for those who you have to take care of uh, in the framework of one's job. Do you think about what you want your audiences to come away with having been to one of your shows whilst you're programming it? Of course, it's such a personal experience and it's hard to, to know how, how strongly resonating the piece is with them. Your shows are really political, but how important is, there, is it to you that there's also um, pleasure, pleasure for the people that come and see your exhibitions, and pleasure for the artists that get involved in it? Well, pleasure is, uh, <laughs> we have not enough pleasure in our lives. So of course, like it's, it's it's extremely important. I think that I'm I'm not like too much into this passive pleasure where you know you're just on the receiving end. Ideally, uh, I enjoy shows where I can, which really give me an itch, or like where I can really engage with um, um, with the objects or with like something that is happening that I cannot even name and that I think about it. <laughs> So yeah, I think pleasure is uh, understated. <laughs> I think like in, at least like in Poland, a lot of discussions in um, 
in the queer milieu and also in feminist milieus is about resistance through pleasure. I mean, the resistance on the streets amplified with like, um, um, with pleasure and the pleasure that can be found in collectivity. So not just this individualist, you know, uh, self-focused pleasure, but rather, yeah, I mean, pleasure of being together and of... Um, of hope, I, I guess, because that, that's all there is, I mean, hope. Thanks for joining us on Consuming Culture and to my contributor, Natalia Shelovich. Thanks also to my editor, Dan Bolger. Make sure to visit us on Instagram where you can see artwork especially commissioned for this series. If you don't want to miss future shows, then do subscribe. And while you're at it, if you liked it, we'd appreciate a rating. See you next time. Baby. Baby